This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us for the first time, the newest member of our Hollywood team, Chris Murphy. Hi, Chris. Hi. Wow, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we are so happy to have you here. Uh, I feel like you, you've only really been with us for a couple weeks, but it already feels overdue to have you on the show. And um, you heroically took up the episode that required like a ton of assigned viewing uh, <laughs> because we're going to be talking about the nominated shorts. It's our annual tradition um, where we watch all of the animated live action and um, documentary shorts that are nominated at the Oscars, which you can watch yourself via Shorts TV. If you go there, shorts.tv, you can find a link to figure out how to stream them yourself at home. Um, so we'll talk about the shorts. At the end of the episode, we're also going to be sharing two interviews from our Cocktail Hour Live series that uh, is going on this week as you're listening to this. Uh, Thursday night will be the closing night if you hear this in time. Uh, there's been this incredible series of conversations and trivia and card games and all these amazing celebrity encounters. So we're going to share um, the conversation between Michael B. Jordan and Serena Williams, as well as our colleague Johanna Desta talking to Best Actress nominee Andre Day. Um, so you can look forward to that. But first, we have awards to talk about. The Oscars are next week, which is wild because um, it's really coming to an end. Um, and the BAFTAs were on Sunday night, including some surprises, I think, for a list of nominees that were really all over the place, as we've talked about. They kind of really dug deep this year. Some of the winners were a little bit more expected. Um, but would you guys believe me if I said this is the first big actress prize that Frances McDormand has won? This season? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I saw someone saying on Twitter on Sunday night when the BAFTAs were going on that they kind of hoped Vanessa Kirby wins at the Oscars uh -huh. because that way, like, a different actress will have won every major award. Yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah, the, and so, like, Frances McDormand in some ways was, like, the favorite there because uh, she and Vanessa Kirby were the only Oscar nominees in that category at the BAFTAs. Um, but so she, like, finally took home her big one. Anthony Hopkins won for The Father, which I was kind of thrilled to see, like, Maybe that was a surprise because Chadwick Boseman is such a formidable contender, but we all love that performance around here. Um, what else stood out for you guys and the BAFTA winners? Um, I think we talked about if uh, Yujin Yun won uh, in her category, that might cement her narrative, and it looks like it has. Yeah. So, her speech was so go. great, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she called British people snobby. snobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she absolutely did. I, mean, I would love to see what she calls American people if she picks up the Oscars, given I that. Know. <laughs> you imperialist bastards. <laughs> she ends the Zoom call. 
Um, I'm happy that that has been sort of, I hope that that has been cemented as I think she is, you know, did a fantastic job in the film. And I really hope that the film takes home some hardware uh, at the Oscars. And it feels like that's the best shot for it to uh, take home an Oscar is Eugene Yoon. So I, I'm, I'm happy with the narrative sort of coalescing around her and the momentum building in her favor leading up to the big night. Yeah. When you think about, you know, how beloved that movie is and which categories it's likely to win in, like it just has a lot of competition in every category. And then she emerges and you're like, oh, she's charming. She's the heart of the movie. She gives a great speech. Uh, she has a lot of competition, but no like obvious person with a strong narrative against her. I mean, I guess Porter Glenn close in that conversation, but like, Ugh, Glenn. Maybe, I know. <laughs> but, but if Glenn doesn't win for Hillbilly Elegy, maybe we'll all be relieved, including Glenn. I don't know. I don't want to read I think we'll all be happy mind. about that. And the overdue narrative too even works for Yuzhen because, you know, she's in terms of being recognized by, you know, the Western Hemisphere, you know, for her work, as she yeah. said, in her BAFTA, uh, her BAFTA acceptance. I think that, yeah, even the, you know, the Glenn Close is overdue narrative doesn't even really work against Yuzhen Yoon. So yeah. I, I think ultimately we'll all be happy if Glenn does not win for the Terminator performance in Hillbilly <laughs> and And Glenn Close's, you know, the, the Mother Courage wagon wheels keep turning because I just read something where she gave an interview saying, like, we're hoping to shoot Sunset Boulevard at the end of this summer. So, like, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you know, she just keeps rolling. <laughs> not if Patty Lapone has anything to say about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Elsewhere at the BAFTAs, uh, Nomadland won Best Film, uh, Promising Young Woman won Best British Film. I don't like a lot of that. It's kind of as I was saying at the beginning, like for a wide range of nominees, like a lot of Oscar heavy hitters wind up winning top prizes there, which is um, interesting. Which I wonder if the Baptists look at, you know, they got a lot of press, positive press for their nominations, which were done by committee versus, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole group. And then a lot of those kind of more outside of the box nominees didn't win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the more conventional ones that were in the, the the running kind of seemed to take most of the top prizes. So I wonder if they would say that the mission failed, but maybe the nomination and the recognition of that was just was the whole point. That yeah. was my question, actually, about the Anthony Hopkins win. Not that he doesn't deserve it, but like since Chadwick Boseman has been on a, you know, a winning streak, was this some kind of repudiation because I know that there was within the BAFTA voting body controversy over their efforts uh, to be more inclusive in their nomination. So I don't, I mean, like, I don't know how to interpret that win, but I was just wondering if that might be the case. I think he's a home, you know, he's a Welsh guy. Like, I think that had a lot to do with it. I think to me, it was less of a repudiation of the Bozeman narrative and more of like, and that best actor actually kind of had a big, you know, heavy hitters with the maybe exception of Ardash Gurov for The White Tiger. But elsewhere, leading actress where you had Wumi Masaku from his house, Alfred Woodard from Clemency, a movie that was out here last year. Bucky Bakray from Rocks did win a prize. She just didn't win Best Leading Actress. Yeah, she won the Rising Star Award. Yeah, which was actually another fun speech. She seemed very, you know, surprised and happy. Um, but yeah, I think this whole, this whole thing of like critics and other, you know, sort of select people bringing in a further reaching array of nominees when it was up to the whole BAFTA to vote on those nominations. They went for the mostly for the bigger names. Yeah, but- it's kind of funny to me how even maybe even despite their best efforts this year, the Baptists feel like more of a bellwether for the Oscars than, mm. than yeah. in previous years. And I honestly wasn't. I'm very happy for Anthony Hawkins. He did a wonderful job. But I don't really think that 
shakes up the Chadwick Boseman narrative. The BAFTAs famously are not great at actually awarding black actors. I mean, Denzel Washington has never even been nominated, lest we forget, um, for a BAFTA. So I sort of do see that as sort of like a hometown hero. You know, let's give it to him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as we have been saying on this podcast for over a year, like his performance in The Father is amazing. And if it were not for Chadwick Boseman's really dominant uh, narrative and performance, you know, he would be a a big contender. So it's nice to see him able to take home a noteworthy prize for a really remarkable performance. Yes. And his work on Twitter has been really fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And we can't forget that. Yeah, I feel like everyone needs to know how good Anthony Hopkins is on Twitter. Well, Twitter is the T in BAFTA, right? (laughs) Yeah. I thought it was TikTok. Yeah, it's been released by TikTok, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm so behind the times. (laughs) Um, I I always have an eye on my beloved Sound of Metal. Uh, So I want to look at a below the line category, which is editing. And I think for a while, the narrative was that, like, Chloe Zhao, because she directed and edited Nomadland that she would scoop both. I think she was the front runner in that category. Sound of Metal won, even though Nomadland was nominated. And the the editing guild awards are on the 17th. So I don't know. Yeah. I, we don't usually focus on the editing category, but I just thought that was interesting. I'm like, maybe it certainly seems like it's going to win sound, but it might also win editing, which might be just a nice way to spread the wealth since Chloe Zhao is expected to, you know, be victorious in, in some of the top categories. Yeah, and while we're talking about uh, Chloe Zhao, we should probably mention that the DGA Awards also happened over the weekend, and uh, she won, uh, which I think was pretty widely expected. And there, I was very excited to see. I'm just trying to, I'm like scrolling down to figure out what the prize was. But Truffle Hunters won something, I guess. Uh, Asked any directing for documentary, and I love that little movie and the dogs in it, and I was really excited to see. Did Beerbutt accept the award? I don't know. I mean, I guess at an in-person ceremony, it was hard to yeah. to fly. <laughs> uh, while the DGAs were happening, the art director. Guild Awards were also happening and there were people on my feed tweeting like kind of live tweeting both and so I was like wait the DGA has a fantasy film category? I have no idea. <laughs> not, it was not the DGA. It was the other one. T- Tenet won that, by the way. Oh, I, I, think. I guess yeah. that's I guess yeah. that's fantasy. Good for Tenet. Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and also Darius Martyr won for first time director. Um which is great. At DGAs. Yeah, at DGAs. Not art directors. Yeah. Um, Not ADGs. Uh, <laughs> but he beat um, Regina King, Florian Zeller, and Rada Blank, uh, as well as uh, Fernando Frias, De La Parra for I'm No Longer Here. But uh, anyway, some heavy competition in that category. It's exciting to see how many first-time directors were out there this year. Ma Rainey also won uh, the BAFTA for costume design and hair and makeup. And, mm-hmm. and I, I've seen some folks say they feel like that narrative is cementing around that film now as well for those well, categories. Yeah. And she's like 89, 90, that costume designer? Anne Roth, yeah. Yeah. Um, and a, kind of a cool, fashionable lady with a lot of history behind her. So I think that, you know, um, in addition to doing great costumes, I think there's kind of a fun story there, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I interviewed her for The Post because she's been Meryl Streep's costume designer forever and ever and ever and, like, talked to her about that. You remember that, like, caftan she's wearing in that big? Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so she she ruled, and I would be uh, delighted. She's won before. She won for the English Patient, uh, so this would be her second, but well deserved. I, I can't believe you didn't know that I always wear that caftan when I'm recording this podcast. <laughs> Wait, what about, Jer- what about Jeremy Irons' uh, Oscar jacket that we were talking about last week? Oh, yeah, that goes over the caftan. <laughs> <laughs> it's really heavy and hot, but worth it. <laughs> Listen, it's cold here in the mornings. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look at the makeup uh, nominees just to see. Yeah, because like it's Ma Rainey and Mank are kind of like the highest profile movies in that category. He's just got Emma Hillbilly Elegy and Pinocchio. So it, in some level, it seems to be between those two. Um, and Ma Rainey's like makeup, I mean, what they do to Viola Davis and like and how it's like really over the top, but also really deliberate in recreating this real person, but having this like stage makeup feel. Um, yeah, I can see that happening for sure. Although I don't know if I would have nominated Mank because the makeup in that movie made Gary Oldman look like he was in his 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's you don't know the alcohol yeah. they had in the 30s and 40s just That's aged true. you. And then uh, Herman Winkos, Mankiewicz drank plenty of it. All right, let's talk about the Oscars themselves because they've announced um, the list of presenters. You know, the shape of this show is really um, still kind of a mystery and I think kind of exciting, um, especially as we try to dream up like ways that they'll incorporate actual trains into the ceremony, whether or not that actually happens. Um, but Joanna, do you want to run down the list of presenters who they've announced and who might be exciting on there? Yeah. All right. So the list they sent out, we've got Angela Bassett, Halle Berry, Bong Joon-ho, Don Cheadle, Brian Cranston, Laura Dern. Harrison Ford, Regina King, Marley Matlin, Rita Moreno, Joaquin Phoenix, Brad Pitt, Reese Witherspoon, Renee Zellweger, and Zendaya. So, um, a lot of famous that, people. A lot. Well, I mean, yes, a great lineup. <laughs> Love all those people. Uh, I think the Academy sort of oversold. I think if they had just released that list, I'd have been like, I love this list. But they sent out an email where they're like, check out this star studded cast. And I feel like it's a little different than the lineup we usually get. Do you guys disagree? I don't know. Like less starry? Slightly less starry? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. Okay. Wow. The less dissing of Brad Pitt is really upsetting. (laughs) No, I mean, like, you've got the people won last year. They are contractually obligated to come back. Like, that's true. But, like, um, and there's a lot of people in here that I think are, like, interesting and fun. But I wouldn't call it, like, the starriest, studiest lineup we've ever seen for an Oscars presenter list. I would go it's, like, an A-minus list. It's not, like, an (laughs) A-list. It's, like, an A-minus list, which is still amazing. It's still, you know, it's definitely uh, glitz and glamour. But I have to imagine that this year was probably the most impossible year to get people to agree yeah. to give awards to other famous rich people in the or to travel like you know you, you have to have people who are in LA although I, I don't imagine Bong Joon-ho has been in LA this whole time so I guess he's traveling I mean it makes me just like wonder like where's Matt Damon where's George Clooney where's J-Lo like where are all the Soderbergh players who mm. you would think that he'd be able to drag in here Hmm. Maybe there's well, Don, Don Cheadle. Oh, yeah, I mean, we got Don Cheadle and Brad Pitt. That's, that's <laughs> I want Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, <laughs> <laughs> giving um, out an award. With Harrison Ford nominate presenting something, the question is which movie title do we want him to say the most? To hear Mank. him say, it's Mank. I mean, clearly Mank, right? <laughs> Mank. You know, it's just going to be really. I just hope that happens. Marini, I yeah, think. Yeah. Who on that Borat list? We- subsequent movie film. It'll be. Who on that list do we think is presenting Best Picture? My my guess is Rita Moreno um, in the Jane Fonda tradition of just getting the legends to hand it out. But I think Harrison Ford's done it before, too. I think he has. Um, oh, yeah. No, he did. Was that Jack Nicholson or him who did Crash? It's Jack Nicholson who presented, yeah. like, the Crash. Oh, yeah. Uh. He was like, Crash. <laughs> I could see Marley Matlin doing it. You know, she just had, like, this huge movie at Sundance. Yeah. Like, I think it would be a nice nod to Sound of Metal. To, I mean, uh, you know, to have, like, a... Uh, a deaf person, yeah. you know, announce a big award, you know, maybe in ASL. So I don't know. I could see that happening. But um, maybe she'll announce sound like when they, you know, when they know something's going to win and um, get someone who's connected to it to, right. to present. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, what's what's the level of excitement you guys are having for the ceremony at this point? I worry maybe I'm getting my hopes up too high, but I can't help it. I'm excited for the satellite hubs, too. I'm wondering if anyone will, you know, show up there. You know, is Brad Pitt going to show up in Germany or no, or in London or Paris or where? Where are they having the satellite hubs again? Do we... um, London and Paris, I think. London and Paris. Okay, that does make sense. Um, I, I am excited at the fact that they're really trying to have a live element. Um, you know, that we're trying to move away from the Zoom SAG Awards, the Zoom Golden Globes of it all. And I think that whether or not they pull it off, I think that's in and of itself going to be kind of worth tuning in Um, because it's sort of hard for me to imagine how how smoothly can this possibly go <laughs> with yeah. three different locations, every, you know, um, rotating audiences between like a post stage and the stage and a pre-stage. It feels like, not that I want anything to go wrong, but it's always fun to see things not go exactly as planned. Yeah. So I do think we're going to have some level of unexpected event uh, that might occur. There might be something unexpected or unplanned that might happen that I think has been missing in a lot of the award season. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of pumped for that. Hopefully, not that I want things to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's unexpected. Not like Daniel Kaluuya being on mute, like something more right. fun. Something or more Harrison fun. Ford crashing his plane into the train station. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a stunt that they planned already. Actually, oh my god, I hope planes, trains, and automobiles is like the theme <laughs> of the awards. I was just trying to do the math about like categories that will be announced versus how many presenters there are because there's 15 presenters here. I think a reason why it might feel slightly muted compared to last year is because you don't have like pairs of presenters you have Mm. single presenters probably um there's 15 presenters there's like 24 categories we have to imagine like one person's going to do all the short announcement and like you know they might double up on some of the below the line announcements and stuff like that but um it still means like you won't have people introducing you know original song performances if they're even doing that do we have any word on whether or not anyone's singing it seems to be that they I don't think they've confirmed anything but having like poked around like it seems like there have been conversations about it and we should expect something Um, because that seems like such an easy like live TV exciting thing to have that you wouldn't pass that up they gotta let Diane Warren the year Diane Warren's gonna take it home they have to have you think Diane Warren's gonna win song performance I do I do think I, I feel like she's got it is that is that uh, I, is that a bad take? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's not honestly, a bad take. no, no, no. Like I no. think the like if like, there's energy behind the Eurovision song, which is a uh, underdog for because it's Eurovision song. But yeah, like I do love that. It, and you know, it's great. It's a great song. Um, and no, it could totally be Diane Warren's year. But also, we've said that one like sixteen times, and she's Listen, never won. Eurovision definitely would have won if they had nominated Yaya Ding Dong, which is what they should have done. But Kuzovic uh, <laughs> might take it. it Yaya Ding Dong says Harrison Ford. <laughs> Uh, see, see, now I have my hopes up for an Oscars. It's not even going to happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Without a host, uh, without a singular host, which, you know, we've we've done before at the Oscars to throw to these songs. Like, is there going to be like a, a narrator? Like what's, you know, I, I just have some questions about the number of people versus. Has there ever been a Steven Soderbergh movie with like voiceover? Like I'm trying to think of like. Like James Spader, like from, like from Sex Lies and Videotape, like really throw it back. I know it's not. I going love to be that a, you think this is going to be like a super Soderbergh Oscar movie. Why in the world would they do that? I just like that's where my brain goes. If it, op- I'll tell you this: if it opens with Channing Tatum doing some kind of magic mic routine, holy shit! <laughs> I will lose my mind. <laughs> it will be for me and only me, and that is fine. Alex Pettifer has showed up just to join <laughs> Channing Tatum. 
Oh, no, you get, if you get Matthew McConaughey to come back uh, in his Oscar snubbed Magic Mike performance, then you've really achieved something glorious. Oh, to do like ladies of this train station. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for putting that in my brain. Okay. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Um, before we move on to talking about the shorts, um, you know, we're still getting your questions from subtext. We are still answering them as best we can. I think we'll probably talk about a lot of them next week when we do our final predictions. Um, but I wanted to shout out to Tamara Peterson, who is asking for help watching. She's trying to watch everything with her friends, which is incredibly admirable. And I'm not even watching everything this year. Uh, and she was uh, talking about running into roadblocks with uh, a couple of the shorts, which I want to, you know, say again, shorts.tv is the place to find those. Um, and The Man Who Sold His Skin, which has seemed to be the trickiest one to see. It wasn't exclusively in theaters. It's now on Prime. You can watch it. You rent it for $6 on Amazon Prime. So uh, go be a completist and tell me about it because I haven't seen it yet. Has anybody seen it on this call? No. I have a link for it, but I'm, the subject matter sounds kind of bleak. And well, having Richard. watched all the shorts, I was like, no. <laughs> so to say, <laughs> speaking of bleak subject matter. Oh, yeah. I, this, <laughs> not light fair uh, this year. As <laughs> as it never I is, really. Never. Yeah, never, never is. But this year seemed to felt particularly... Maybe because it's my first couple of weeks here, I was like, woof, you know, really sort of some hazings, you know, watch all the shorts in your first couple of weeks (laughs) on the new job, really seeing if you have the the gumption to stick to stick with it. Can we make that our new Vanity Fair hazing? You you have to watch all the Oscar nominated shorts. You have to watch every single one all at all. I was just going to tell Chris the next time he can come on for like the Eurovision sequel or whatever, like the easiest thing in the world to talk about. Very light. Please. (laughs) Um, a light comedy. Well, you guys, maybe we can start with what is uh, usually the lightest category and isn't some of them. We can talk talk about animated, um, which they were all pretty short this year, which I always appreciate when you get like, because like with eight minutes in animation, you can really uh, go a long way. Um, And one of them is a Disney Plus short. I think it's Pixar. Borough, or is that Disney Animation or Pixar? It's their Sparks program. Got it. Which is sort of like their training wheels program that they let like people who work at Pixar get to uh, you know make the, they they have they have a whole vertical for it on Disney Plus of all the Spark shorts. Yeah, and there's some great stuff in there. I had mm-hmm. watched this one already um, with my kids, um, and it's 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 so charming. This bunny just wants to build a house. It's let cute. the bunny build a house. Having just moved into my own studio apartment, like, weeks before <laughs> watching this, this really did strike an emotional chord, um, and I, I, I did love it deeply. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of the, so Yes People is available online in a couple places at The New Yorker. If anything happens, I love you. is on Netflix. I don't know. Is, did you guys have an obvious standout among this group? I was really captivated by Opera, which is mm-hmm. this South Korean attempt mm-hmm. to, I think, kind of delineate all of human history and activity in a really interesting form of animation that was kind of like a a kind of scrolling mural 
in a way mm-hmm. of like human activity rendered in like little stick figures and with this ominous music. I wasn't quite sure what I was seeing. And I think that like seeing it on a bigger screen and being able to really parse out like what the little individual boxes of, of activity were would have helped. But the overall effect was unlike any other animated short I've seen that I can think of. I mean, it was vaguely reminiscent of um, the world of tomorrow. Is that what it's called? Hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 yeah, 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 like a sort of, but not quite that. Um, so I was really taken by that as just something very outside of the norm of what we tend to see in this category. Yeah. I think it's gonna be hard to beat the impact if I, if anything happens, I love you, which is uh, about a school shooting, uh, like a parents uh, sort of coping with losing their child to a school shooting. And it's, it's a, it's a short that sort of, you don't know what it's about at first. And then you, you have this creeping dread and you find out what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also say, like shout out that team because Will McCormick, who is Mary McCormick's brother, but also Rashida Jones's like writing partner. They, they strike me as sort of the most often we have to look at these shorts creators and who has like sort of maybe the most pals in the Academy. Mm-hmm. Not that it's only based on that, but that can only help obviously. And so I think, you know, Will being sort of the face of this and being a known quantity in Hollywood and, and the subject matter being feeling so urgent um, and so impactful. And it is, I mean, it's a beautiful film. It's harrowing and, and it doesn't feel too emotionally manipulative, which some of these things can feel sometimes. It just feels I mean, devastating. Yeah. So that's it's also um, produced by Laura Dern or executive produced by Laura right, Dern. Right, speaking right, of exactly. uh, people with Academy connections. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like the, uh, on its Wikipedia, it says that it premiered on March 4th, 2020 during a private screening at, at um, UTA, the agency in Beverly Hills, including Ch- Chelsea Handler, Mary McCormick, Rashida Jones, Laura Dern were all there. And it's like, does a private screening room screening count as a premiere? I guess it did during... Well, that wasn't even that was pre. Quite, yeah, that was that, that's pre- like it's like one of the only nominees that got to go play in front of an audience. But I think that it's Hollywood pedigree and its subject matter. And I mean, it's beautiful animation, I think, are put it pretty far toward the head of the pack. I yeah. think. Chris, what stood out for you? I also found opera to be super fascinating. I feel like I could watch that short film, and I tried to watch it like three times. I could watch it a hundred times and mm-hmm. pick up something new every single time. So I think I think that, um, and it is so original and inventive um, in its storytelling. So I also like Richard was definitely uh, captivated by opera, and as well, I really liked uh, Genius Losi. Genius, Lo- am I saying that right? Yeah, I'm saying that man, completely wrong. As far as I know, um, the French uh, French film that was really artistic and uh, avant-garde and doing some really uh, interesting, again, interesting storytelling with the medium of uh, animation Yeah. Um, in a way that I wasn't as, you know, you know, I loved Burrow, obviously, but in the way that I didn't really find with sort of the other three shorts necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and Netflix, which I think once we get to the the live, um, I have some issues with Netflix and uh, their their shorts this year. Um, but if anything happens, I love you. Was deeply moving and and uh, timely and important, and it does seem like it has sort of this head start, so to speak, on these other shorts that uh, sort of makes it potentially the front runner. Mm. Um, but I think with this medium, I don't know something that I've always been drawn to with the shorts is you know is how 
how they use the animated medium in sort of an interesting new way. And I definitely mm-hmm. saw that with opera um, and Genius Lucy as well. Yeah, I feel like we say this every year to some extent, but like, you know, you watch big budget American studio animated films, which like by their nature are expensive and have to appeal to a wide audience. And then you see these films, which are just daring and kind of in the way that they use the format and you see the possibilities of what animation can be. And that's like one of the biggest things I get out of watching these every year. And I think another interesting, and, and I don't know that this is actually true, but it feels like they're sometimes, especially in animated, but also sometimes in live action shorts, you can kind of tell the difference between a movie that is sort of a sizzle reel for like a talent and mm. one that's actually a kind of cohesive, like a, a, a sort of discrete thing. And Genius Losa, Losi, Lokai, I don't know, uh, that feels like kind of more discreet, as does opera. I mean, I guess they kind of all do, but I feel like Burrow feels like more of an audition piece or something. Um, or a larger feature, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's what the Spark Shorts program is about. It's right. just sort of yeah. like, here's what I can do, Pixar, put me on like your bigger film or something like that. And yeah. and I did think, I, I love watching the animated um, films because I just love the variety of kinds of animation that are usually available in the shorts category. That are available in the, in the feature length category as well, but, you know, often that is dominated by Disney stuff. And um but but I'm also I think it's ever since the year there was that animated short where the it was just about like how to pack a suitcase and then it was like about the person's like dad dying in the funeral and I'm like always <laughs> on the lookout for what is going to be the devastating turn <laughs> right. in any short that we watch. Um, so there's always something. There's yeah. always something. Um, all right, Chris, you said you had issues with Netflix's live action short. So lay it on us. Where, which one do you want to dig it on? I, I really, two distant strangers uh, really did not, did not sit well with me. And I think it's one of those short films. I will say so. It's about police brutality. It's actually, it's very graphic and it's depiction of police brutality against a black man. And he's sort of, it's a very much a groundhog's day. He has the same recurring nightmare over and over and over again that he gets murdered and shot by police. And I watched it last night, you know, really hours after um, learning about uh, Dante Wright's murder mm-hmm. in Minnesota. Um, so I guess, you know, which I guess speaks to its timeliness. Um, obviously, it is a very, you know, it's a very, it's a very timely uh, subject matter. But I felt that it was gratuitous in its violence and that uh, its intention did not really match up with its impact as a viewer, as a black man watching this. Um, it felt um, overly violent, somewhat even exploitative in the way that it depicted this violence without really having a, a, other than police brutality is bad and wrong, which we all sort of know, I didn't really see what message it was sending. And then at the end, when the credits roll and they go through the list of, you know, a long list of every, you know, black person uh, who's been murdered by the police, uh, then you see that it's, you know, it's a Netflix film. It's being produced by P. Diddy and Jesse Williams and all these sort of like A-list actors, which is fantastic and great um, that they care. But it just felt, uh, it felt a little exploitative and a little ultimately gratuitous in its uh, depiction of police brutality. And maybe I was an open wound at the time, but I really, it really did not sit right with me. I did not really like it at all. <laughs> yeah, and you can, so, you know, it's written, I think, also directed by Trayvon Free, who's a, a comedian, and you can see, you see the idea of Groundhog Day applied to this, because, you know, every time you get 
one of these stories about uh, police brutality, it feels like a cycle just repeating over and over again. Like it's a very obvious exactly. link to, you know, something that, you know, people feel like they're experiencing repeatedly. But it's really hard to like have kind of the lightness of it and have this sense of like a date. So then the guy's waking up and just trying to get home the next day. Um, and yeah, like the the brutality you're talking about, like it is really shocking. And I, it is something that you have to be so careful with because there's so much of it that we encounter in real life, like these videos of real yes. people going through that. And then when you're deciding to recreate it in fiction, that's a really hard line to, to walk. Yeah, it actually, watching it made me rethink a movie that I really enjoyed, That one of my favorite movies of the year, uh, Promising Young Woman. I totally understood the criticism coming from a lot of people in terms of the sort of the gratuitous violence of the ending of that movie, but didn't really emotionally connect with that criticism of that movie until watching Two Distant Strangers and having that sort of adverse negative reaction. And it really put into context more so what a lot of people, specifically a lot of women, um, the problems they have with Promising Young Woman. So it was just very interesting um, to watch, you know, given what happened literally that day. And sort of, yeah, the light, the, the tonally it was off trying to, you know, capture this comedic, you know, Groundhog's Day meet cute juxtaposed with, you know, gratuitous film uh, footage of a black man, you know, losing his life at the hands of the police with, you know, and then, you know, over and over nice again, with the poli- yeah. over and over and over again. At one point, his blood makes the shape of Africa on the ground. Yeah. It was just sort of like, what, what is this? What are you, <laughs> act- what are you trying to say? And what is the point of this? Like, what is, I don't know. I'm very much of a Marseille Martin. Maybe we don't need to see, you know, <laughs> black yeah. pain just sort of absolutely thrust at us in our faces uh, for no other reason just to, than to say this is ultimately not what we want. Yeah. A friend of mine pointed out to me that also this particular thing has been done in a movie called The Obituary of Tunde Johnson from 2019, a movie that was at TIFF about a Nigerian-American kid reliving over and over again a day when he gets killed by police. Huh. And so it just feels like, it feels that's like very close timeline-wise to this, that it just mm-hmm. feels like maybe there should have been a little more thought put into this whole enterprise. I don't know. And on a very superficial level, after your very thoughtful commentary on it, I will say that the white cop's accent, that actor is Welsh. His, his American accent is He's Welsh. Really, it's weird and bad. I was like, you couldn't find a single American <laughs> to play this bad white cop. I don't know. It is weird and bad. And, it's, and the cop's last name was Murphy, which is my last name. And I also didn't like that. So that <laughs> Fair that enough. How dare you bring sit. shame upon the Murphy family name? Absolutely not. It's also I very bad at pretending LA is New York. So, well, oh, yeah. 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 Oh, my um, God. That one, yeah, that hotel, I mean, that, that, uh, their, that apartment building. I was like, where in New York? I was like, that's yeah, not Williams, both of their, and they, like, they flash to his apartment where the dog is. And it's like, how, how much money do these people have? <laughs> not New York. I think I didn't realize until now it was supposed to be New York. I just assumed it was LA. That's funny. That's your California wanna, bias showing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I want to heap some scorn on one of the uh, live action shorts, which is The Letter Room. Um, Another one about law enforcement, as almost all of them are. Right. This was yeah. a this is, I think, the starriest entry. It's got Oscar Isaac and Aaliyah Shawkat, and it was directed by Oscar Isaac's wife, Elvira Lind. And um, I don't understand the point of this. And it feels really tonally out of step. I don't understand. Like, so Oscar Isaac plays this a quote unquote good prison guard, right? Who uh, is put on uh, like mailroom duty essentially and has to scan the letters that come in and becomes like 
sort of in love with, obsessed with this one woman who's writing in and he's concerned that something's going to happen to her. So she, he reaches out to her. And this just feels like creepy, patriarchal, overreaching behavior that is not coded as such in the film. It seems like two people connecting or something like that. And then there's just no fallout from it. I, I was baffled by what the point of this movie was. So This also very much felt like it's just a short kind of placeholder to get the feature length funding. Yeah. And I don't know that I want to see that feature length movie, um, even Mm -hmm. though Oscar Isaac's a great actor, but yeah, it felt really tonally weird and not in an interesting way either, you know, but I kind of still think it's going to win. Oh yeah. I think I thought, um, two distant strangers is going to win just for all the, it's either one of those two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad because I think the present is really good. I really loved that I film. also loved The Present. I yeah. thought that was, in terms of her talking, given the uh, the vein of uh, law enforcement being kind of shitty, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, very prevalent in these live-action shorts, I, or, I really thought The Present sort of did the most nuanced sort of best job at, <laughs> at that. Um, yeah, if, Joanna, if you want to talk about it a little bit more. Well, it's yeah, it's just a, it's about a Palestinian man and his daughter trying to get a present for, you know, the wife and mother, uh, a fridge and the like sort of their harrowing journey across the, like a checkpoint and their interaction with, you know, the Israeli army occupiers and and their journey back. And it's not overcooked the way a lot of these sort of stories can be. I think it's just really centers on this father and daughter and. I just thought the performances were really good. I thought, um, I just really, I was swept up by it. Is, yeah. is it crass to say that the the father's also really handsome? Yeah, he he's has this real, <laughs> like, uh, L.L. Bean model, like, rugged <laughs> vibe about him, um, which doesn't hurt. Anything. Yeah, he's so hot. He's like, that's a movie star. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Am I a little bit of a clay bang or something. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Am I a total sucker for like falling for feeling through? I'd like it's it feels like kind of a contrived situation of like this, um, you know, this guy is just trying to find a place to sleep for the night, like encounters this deaf and blind man and like they make a connection on a bus stop. But I don't know. I like I, the New Yorkiness of that maybe as compared to Due to Some Strangers really uh, sucked me in. And I thought it was a really I, I did also um, enjoy feeling through. And also once I learned that the deaf blind man uh, is deaf and blind in real life. Yeah. And this is his first major film role. And I think this is the first film that stars a deaf blind actor. I did think that, you know, added some weight and gravitas to the whole entire enterprise, which was sort of a, a nice touching, um, somewhat contrived moment between, you know, uh, a youth and, and, you know, an older deaf blind man. Yeah. And I thought Stephen Prescott, who plays the the youth, um, was great. Was really good too. Yeah, so he great. Is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's great. You know, as much as I didn't like Two Distant Strangers at all, I thought um, Joey Badass was. I thought he was good in it. I didn't like it, but I thought his performance was good in it. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, And I, I thought there was yeah, a lot I, of I agree. good talent in these in these shorts this year. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, of the of the five that we haven't talked about, White Eye, which is also about the police like getting involved when they shouldn't be. Mostly, it was just like in Israel, do like the cops get involved in the stolen bike? Like it seems like a lot of response for like what a guy says is his stolen bike. I was I was confused at how that works. I mean, I'm like it felt like the police station was like right around the corner. Or something <laughs> like they were that, just bored, given, and they were just like got there really quickly both times. Yeah, 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 exactly. all, yeah. I mean, it's all done in like one take, which is impressive, like in a, in a technical way, but um, maybe hampered the storytelling a little bit. 
it does, but it also gave me a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the one take of it all, so I, I found myself sort of feeling the the appropriate reaction to it. But yeah, these are all law enforcement films, except for feeling through, I guess. And like, it sort of depends whether or not. You know, the voters are going to want to give themselves a cookie about law enforcement or feel like uh, or, or go with something that's a little bit more conflicted about it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And that makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's yeah. not, you know, yeah, yes, exactly. that makes them feel uncomfortable rather than makes them feel that they've really done something when ultimately nothing has been done or solved. Yeah. Or <laughs> I will right. say that the president won the BAFTA for uh, for best British short film, which I didn't know it was British. But um, so. The one that we it's thought was so the best. Good. One the it is really good. Yeah. It is really good. And the little girl is fantastic, she's, too. Yeah, oh. She's good. Um, well, then we, so we'll close with the documentary, which is uh, historically the grimmest of the bunch. And um, maybe not this time, honestly. It's grim, but, like, the live actions might have been grimmer. Um, but I thought these were the best of, of as a group. Like, oh, there was pretty much not a bad one in there. Katie, you and I had talked off air about Do Not Split, which is about the um, Hong Kong protests and how like I thought it was really I was really engaged by it. But also it felt like I wanted a little bit more like oftentimes when I look at the running time of some of these shorts, I'm like, oh, this is too long. Uh, But Do Not Split is one of the rare occasions where I was like, I want more of this because I want a little bit more story around this and a little bit more sense of sense of an ending or sense of an arc or something like that Uh, it's an ongoing struggle of course so like there can't be like a total neat little bow tied on it but it just feels like something that kind of ended and i was like i was watching that so like i don't know (laughs) um i don't know if if there's going to be more to come or something like that but that was that was my uh that was my thought on that one Hunger Ward is one of the hardest things I've ever had to watch. And absolutely. Uh, it was, oh, my God. Yeah. Sky Fitzgerald. This is this is about the, uh, you know, famine crisis in Yemen and and a look at, um, you know, starving children. And and this is Sky Fitzgerald. I think this is third short film and the only the second one that we've covered since I've been on Little Gold Men. The first one was Lifeboat, which was a couple years ago, which was a really tough sit as well. Um, and like that's sort of Sky Fitzgerald's thing where he's just sort of like, I'm going to show you the worst thing you've ever seen and I'm going to make it so you cannot look away from it. But this was this is one of the, the hardest things I've ever watched in my life, I would say, as Hunger Ward. So. Yeah, that's where I'm going to confess. You gave me permission not to watch it and I watched the first 10 minutes and, and had to bow out which is yeah. not, uh, I'm not proud of it, but uh, it does, it, I don't know, after watching all the documentaries, it felt like a really tough thing to engage with. And I feel like this is often where in documentary short, where we see things like Hunger Ward, maybe not to this extreme, mm-hmm. um, but there are feature length documentaries that cover these harrowing geopolitical issues with this much kind of up close intensity, but they oftentimes don't make it to like the Academy shortlist. And so they get less attention. And, and I think that like recognizing the, you know, the sort of political urgency of of something like this it is an important facet of the Academy's mission, you know. And I think that if nothing else, shorts like um, Hunger Ward are a good argument for not, you know, combining the shorts categories or taking them off the live broadcast or whatever people have sort of suggested, because the shorts often seem so kind of esoteric and un- not in dialogue with anything else at the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't kind of deny the importance of a movie like Hunger Ward getting this kind of attention, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I was really blown away 
by Hunger Ward. It was honestly, it was so unbelievably difficult and to watch and to and to sit through. Um, and I was really not primed for it because I saw I, I I didn't do any research before turning it on, and I saw oh it's you know it's by MTV. It was like oh presented by MTV Studios, and yeah. I was like okay, so I wonder you know I was totally. I had, you know, I had my MTV, you know, Jersey Shore, you know, 16 and pregnant brain on <laughs> turning on this documentary about, you know, the, uh, the civil war in Yemen and, and, you know, child malnutrition and child starvation. Um, and it just really, it goes to show, you know, that's the landscape of, you know, the studio system. It's changing. Like MTV can make, you know, the most harrowing documentary I've ever seen in my entire life, not to sort of count out these, you know, these more frivolous or what you might imagine to be frivolous uh, studios or companies. Yeah. For for all um, the criticism we had of some of the live action shorts, I thought A Love Song for Latasha was really beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. This was about... I like that it's described as a celebration of the life of Latasha Harlins, um, who, you know, was shot when she was 15 years old um, in 1991 in South Central L.A. And is part of what sparked off the riots um, in L.A. And there's a couple things about this film that are really interesting. It's it's sort of just all about who she like what was lost, right, who she was, um, her potential, all this sort of stuff. I, I didn't know this because I'm just like a little, I think a little too young to know this, but apparently like the footage of this shooting was something that was shown over and over and over and over again in the early 90s. Um, and sort of like what we've talked about in terms of like, you know, is is uh, violence perpetrated on black people something that like is helpful in forwarding the conversation? And the filmmaker behind this uh, documentary short was adamant that they were not going to use that footage and instead uh they shot young black women in and around the neighborhood where latasha grew up doing some of the things that is being described uh were part of her life as sort of this idea of just sort of like not he's not like sunshine and lollipops it's not like but but just a just a a different way to talk about what was lost rather than focusing on the violence focusing on the life and i thought that was a really beautiful framing and a really beautiful film yeah and it uses animation in such an evocative way too it made me think Mm -hmm. of um gene genus loki um in the animated category just on how it like evokes feeling in really abstract animation throughout the whole thing yeah, its ability to evoke feeling and to get a really clear message across as to this is what was lost and this is how this loss affected her community, her friends, her family, and the loss that still felt to this day without resorting to images of the murder and to images of gratuitous violence was really really beautiful and really affecting. And I think it just goes to show that there are so many different ways to tell a story like this that needs to be told, that still needs to be told, and that you don't have to resort to sort of the most base and classic, you know, depiction of, you know, violence to get an important message across about the awfulness of gun violence. Yeah. I saw some, some a friend sent like some chart from, I, I don't know, some publication about like Netflix movies, post Oscar nominations and what kind of viewership bump they got. And by far a love song for Latasha got the biggest bump. It was up huh. like 600%, which probably means a lot of people weren't you know, finding it. It wasn't known to be on Netflix, but since the nomination was announced, it seems a lot more people have watched it, which again is part of the point why the, of why this, this category exists is to get yeah. eyes on, on these select few. 
I wanted to say quickly about Colette, um, yeah. which is produced by The Guardian. How many years until you until Isabel Huppert makes this her Philomena? <laughs> she would like, be so good. That's definitely be happening, amazing. right? Because this character is amazing. I mean, she's this yeah. fascinating brusque woman who's doesn't really do much emotion until, you know, it's really required. And um it's just a it's a fascinating look at um, you know, memories of World War Two and the French resistance and this woman trying to you know, uh, basically find the place where her, her brother died in, in this um, concentration camp. And, but she just makes for a fascinating central figure. And yeah. yeah, it feels right before the future film adaptation. I'm obsessed with this line from the Indie Wires write-up of this film. Uh, an elderly French lady who speaks to pigeons and speaks her mind. And I'm just <laughs> like, Colette is a fascinating subject. Uh, you know, she's she's brusque. Uh, sometimes she's just like downright angry. And then she's just emotional and vulnerable and all of these things. And I just, I, I, I cried watching this Um so yeah, yeah. And the the woman she's with the young researcher um, who's mm-hmm. just like so like sweet and cares so much about the history and it's just like this like ideal companion for her and she's emotionally overwhelmed along with Colette and Colette's like trying to like make jokes and brush it off and then they just like they have this like powerful connection and in the credits are over this like long tracking shot zooming in on them just like staring fiercely into the camera um, which feels like such a good just a good read on what the story is like it's about these two. And their connection, like maybe even more so than, you know, revisiting the Holocaust, like how, how that memory is kept alive. I liked this scene where she's at the having dinner and the, the former mayor of this German town where the concentration camp is stands up to give this long sort of like toast to her and kind of rambling and whatever. And she's just like, stop it. Stop. Like <laughs> bangs the table. She's like done. Everyone sit down. Um, it just felt. But, but I think, you know, it, it was it was amusing in its way, but it also it said something subtle about how people kind of try to insist themselves into other people's things and, 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 mm-hmm. and try to almost kind of take center stage or, or sort of, you know, grandstand in their, in their, um, contrition and all this stuff. And, and, and she just was not brooking any of that. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a very interesting dynamic, um, teased out in a, in a short little film. Yeah. Um, we got one uh, subtext question from a listener about uh, having watched the shorts from Tess Calvell. Good for you for watching the shorts. Uh, she basically said, I found myself uncomfortable with some of the filmmaking choices in Hunger Ward and Colette. In particular, it felt like they were exploitative of their subjects for emotional impact. In contrast, in a love song for Latasha, the specific choice was made not to show the security camera footage of Latasha's murder. Um, and basically asked if we have any thoughts on this. I didn't feel the exploitation part in Colette because it felt like she was such a, she was such a willing participant in, yes. in what that documentary captured. Um, but I was curious if you guys felt that way about Hunger Ward as well. I, absolutely did about hunger award um yeah could be you, basically i mean you know i think it's i think it's fair to warn people like you, you watch a child die on camera and then the camera follows their grieving family and not and that's not the only grieving family you just, the camera is just feels really intrusive on the families in a way like you presume that there was you know uh, permission given of course to film them but it just it feels like I'm hoping that it's not me just not wanting to look at this hard thing to watch. And I I really hope it is more like, I feel like I don't belong here in this moment. Mm. I don't belong here and that that camera doesn't belong there. Um, I don't know what you felt, Chris. Yeah, uh, that that happened multiple times in the movie, too, in terms of Mm -hmm. that moment of watching a, a child pass away and staying with the family at length for far too long and sitting there in that in that exact moment 
um, it did feel somewhat, I did wonder if it, you know, I didn't feel like I was supposed to be there, that I should have been privy to this. And I guess that is maybe somewhat the point that this is happening constantly and we're not paying attention and we're not, and we're not caring and we're not helping enough, but also it did feel somewhat exploitative because, you know, how much, how did the camera help anyone in that situation at that time? Really? I sort of had to wonder, um, and what, what, what was that serving? How was that serving the people who were, you know, the real, the very real, very specifically and loudly and deeply grieving people in that moment? It just felt, it, it felt the most icky feeling I've ever felt, which I think is part of the point of the right, film, but right. also definitely felt exploitative um, and was, yeah, something I'm still wrestling with, honestly. It's really tricky. I mean, you, you look at you know, a documentary like the fire at sea from a few years ago, which, you know, showed people uh, who were trying to make it from North Africa to Lampedusa, the island, you know, near Sicily. And that was also like a very close camera. And you're kind of like, Oh, I don't know if we should be here. I mean, during these people's incredible pain and, and struggle at the same time, it is bringing those images and that reality and consciousness to people who wouldn't, who otherwise it's very easy not to pay attention to it. A hunger war does walk that line responsibly enough but yeah there were definitely moments where the camera keeps following someone and you're like just let them move away you know it it felt a little bit like maybe too interested in that like paparazzi almost because they're like they're rushing down the hallway and the camera's running after them do you know Mm. what i mean that's i think that contributed to that with colette i feel like colette would have said cut the cameras if at any point she wanted to cut the cameras you know what i mean yeah Yeah. she has she has a lot of power in those scenes yeah um all Um, right we've talked so long about the shorts (laughs) which is great because there's so much to talk about um do you guys want to close by making any bold predictions do we agree like maybe if anything happens has a good chance an animated maybe i mean is it going to be all the netflixy ones that we think is going to win this i think in documentary it will be colette or um a love song for latasha Mm. yeah and I don't mean this in any pejorative way at all, but like they are more accessible. They feel they're you know, that there is a roundness to their storytelling. And I, I think Love Song for Latasha is very available to watch. I, I think um, as urgent as something as Hunger Ward is, I think or and do not split. I think people might some voters in the Academy might put those at a bit of a distance, whereas they'll more embrace those other more um, emotional sort of sentimental too. I do want to really quickly mention a concerto as a conversation, which is the New York Times mm-hmm. um, a little documentary short, uh, a young man talking to his grandfather and uh, and it has an Oscar ceremony <laughs> in it. Yeah. yeah. And it was produced by Ava DuVernay. So like, you know, there's there's a it wasn't the most it, it was a lovely doc short. It wasn't the most emotionally profound uh, one on the list, but it does have a lot of that connection. Uh, yeah. Chris it. Bowers, who it is about, is, you know, big time composer who composed Green Book, um, just composed Br- Bridgerton, just actually talked to him for oh. the magazine. I talked to him. Oh, I talked to wow. Him, like, I did not put that together. That's so cool. <laughs> Neither did I. And I talked to him. I interviewed him for the magazine like a day before I watched it. And then I was like, wait, this guy seems so familiar. Like, do, we, like, <laughs> do I know him? And then I was like, oh, it, I put it all together. But yeah, it was a lovely little short. I, I mean, it's, it's really great. It was really the only one that really didn't devastate me to my core, I will say, yeah. of the of the shorts. And it's definitely worth watching. And it was also short. It was only 12 minutes. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend watching it. Uh, yeah, and a lot of these, as we're saying, like you can go to shorts.tv to see them all, but a lot of them, if you Google, are accessible, like at The Guardian, at The New Yorker, at New York Times. So um, 
an all worth seeking out on some level, I think. And if people are wondering about watching them, you know, shorts.tv again, I would recommend that maybe you guys agree or disagree. I would recommend watching live action first, then really dig into the documentaries and then give yourself sort of half of a emotional cleanser with the animated. Yeah, maybe um, like see though, Burrow for the very last. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't watch opera last or... Or, or, <laughs> or if anything yeah. happens, I love yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're caring for your emotional well-being here. I think every one of the other one of their shorts is actually in a little panel of opera. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So now we're going to share clips from two of the interviews that aired as part of our Cocktail Hour Live series, this amazing series of virtual events that were happening April 13th, 14th, 15th, uh, with conversations between celebrities, Oscar nominees, game night, trivia, a huge range of stuff. Um, The event has mostly already taken place by the time you hear this, but you can still buy tickets and watch the full lineup from each night until April 22nd. If you want to check that out, go to vfcocktailhourlive.com. You can buy tickets. Uh, And hopefully you like what you're about to hear. First, there's going to be a conversation between our colleague Johanna Desta and Andre Day, who is Oscar nominated for her role as Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Uh, I think it's fascinating that they talk about how she wanted to get into acting, but she had this successful music career and she thought maybe she'd really take her time before getting into something different. Uh, And then instead, this role came along and she got an Oscar nomination for her work. So perhaps she was more prepared than she gave herself credit for. And then after that, there's going to be a conversation between Michael B. Jordan and Serena Williams. Um, Before what you're about to hear, they are talking about a trailer that they watched for Michael B. Jordan's new movie, Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which will be on Amazon on April 30th. And um, you can tell Serena Williams is kind of a fan of just that genre of movie and the whole uh, Michael B. Jordan action hero thing. And she's an action hero herself, as I think they're both aware of. Um, And at the end of the clip you're going to hear, they talk a little bit about his preparation for Creed III and how he's getting ready to be a director on it. And there's also a little bit of news in there, um, which is uh, Serena Williams talking for the first time about her first look deal with Amazon, which we're really excited to be able to share. So take a listen to both. Go to vfcocktailhourlive.com to buy tickets to hear the full version of these conversations and much more. And thanks for joining us. I am so pleased to be joined today by Andra Day. Hello, Andra. How are you? Hi, good. I'm great. And happy to see your face. <laughs> no, happy to see your face too. It's so nice to finally like talk after so many phone interviews. But yeah, I feel like I have to start by saying congratulations on all the success you've had. I mean, if there's anybody who doesn't know, you won a Golden Globe, you have an Oscar nomination, and this is your first film role. So congratulations. How does it feel to kind of be like 
I don't know, living in the success and being on this movie promotion award season cycle? Like, how has that been for you? I mean, it's exactly got a whirlwind, a whirlwind. So what that feels like, right? Maybe exciting, a little disorienting. Um, but I think the thing that I feel the most, you know, I, is um, gratitude for sure. You know, uh, just grateful to to God, to my God, to um, to Lee. You know, the cast, to Tasha, to Tom Jones. So I think I just it just makes me think about everybody who was involved and who was a part of this process and how much I love them. How appreciative I am. So it's, it's, um, yeah, I feel like I'm grateful. This is our thing, you know? Yeah. I love how I feel like every interview I've seen where you've been asked a similar question, you always throw it back to Lee and the cast and the crew. And it's just, I feel like the energy and the connection between all of you with that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think a lot of times people forget, you know, it's a gargantuan effort by a lot of people, you know, and they, it's a lot of leaps of faith. You know, I, everybody's like, oh, you took a leap of faith. I'm like, I did, but they also took like, every actor that signed on to say, wait, so she's never acted before. She's a singer and you want me to be in a movie with her? You know, it's like, it, it would seem like that's the worst decision for your career, <laughs> you know, to be. So I think I'm so appreciative of Natasha and uh, just, you know, all of them. I mean, the leap of faith paid off so well. <laughs> and I'm sure... <laughs> I mean, truly, you know, it does feel not to be very mystical, but it does feel very cosmically aligned that you would play Billy and that you would have all the success playing her. Um, and also for those who don't know, she's she's been a huge influence on your career. Um, she's woven into the very fabric of your stage name. So, of course, I did want to start by going back and asking about young Andra, hearing, you know, Billy's music for the first time. And when you realized that she was going to be this huge influence on you and that you were going to like, I don't know, make a musical path with this artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, she, yes, she's the day does come from lady day <laughs> in my name. Uh, it's always so funny when I get asked questions about my childhood, cause my mind immediately goes like, my God, that was so long ago. I don't even remember. <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember what happened. It was ages ago. No. Um, no, but yes, of course, obviously, it, my introduction to Billie Holiday was very striking for me. Um, and uh, I was actually just looking for singers to just study and to just listen to, to get better and to, you know, to kind of develop a musical identity. And, and interestingly enough, I think I was looking to other singers to cultivate my identity from them. And Billy actually just helped me to accept what it is my voice sounded like and to accept mm-hmm. who I am and my musical contribution because I think she had such a different tone when I first heard. I first heard a song, Sugar. Mm-hmm. Sugar, I call my big friend, but it's a really good song, it's very cute. <laughs> I like hearing her sing happy stuff like that too, lighter, because it's, uh, you know, you don't get that too much. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I heard that song and I remember the palette, you know, the texture, the colors of her voice was so different from, from everything I was used to in the Whitney's and the Aretha's and you know so on and so forth, these sort of big powerhouse singers and also the male crooners, right? Of, that I loved so. Uh, it was very different, and but but you know, along with my discovering her was this idea that you know my musical theater instructor was like, she's the greatest jazz singer that ever lived, and I'm like, this one, <laughs> you know. And so I listened. I was like disoriented, and but I was really enamored with her voice, and and um, so listening to that made me go. First of all, it just made me pay attention to just phrasing. I was very curious about how she sang things, why she placed things the way that she did, you know. Mm. And then 
Secondly, it helped me to accept my own musical identity because her voice was so signature. And so I'm like, okay, I just, what, what I have is what I have and that's what I have to contribute. And then Strange Fruit really, uh, I, that was the second song I heard by her, which sort of prostrated me and, and just made me very still, almost reverent, but also sort of sad for her, really heartbroken for her. Whoever mm -hmm. she was and what was happening, I was unaware fully of what she was singing about, but um, it did make me feel like that's what I'd like to do. I'd like if people hear me or they, or I, whatever it is that I create, I would like, even if it's just fun, I'd like it to, um, to kind of stop people like that, to slow them down, I think, a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm so curious about, I want to dive a little bit more into you hearing Strange Fruit for the first time. Um, when did you realize, though, like as you are, you know, diving into her discography, when did you realize the extent of her um, activism and the extent to which she was, you know, persecuted by the government? When did you realize who she was in the broader scheme of things? Um, that came uh, a little later in my life, you know, in the when I was first discovering her and for those first years, it was just the music. Um, and then the, the discovery of Strange Fruit really evolved over those years. Really, then I got to a point where I'm understanding as I'm studying slavery and as I'm studying racial terror in America as, you know, you know 16, 17, 18, 19, then I'm realizing what she's really saying, you know. And then comes the revelation of what she was saying when she was saying it, you know, like, whoa. And that's really what led me into because we're, we're very familiar with protest songs you know i'm like oh she's talking about lynching once i realized that i'm like yeah it's a great song glad she's singing about it it wasn't until later that i realized oh this is pre-civil rights or pre-being reinvigorated civil rights right the post Emmett Till civil rights and it wasn't until then that i realized wow she's okay this is this is just her <laughs> you know what i mean singing yeah. song. and then it wasn't until later that i realized that she that we didn't have a protest song before that. You know what I mean? This was really our first protest song. And um, so it wasn't a thing back then. And then you realize, okay, I, I, I'm aware at this point of how, <laughs> you know, shit, racist people are now and how racist it was back then and how dangerous it was. So it started to put the pieces together. And that's when I started to really just sort of dive in and realize how they went after her. Um, yeah, so I mean, my entire life, I've been obsessed with her for a very long time. <laughs> And the funny part is she, she's so multi-layered, right? That mm -hmm. you can be obsessed with her for years, you know? I mean, from simple, from her physicality alone, one picture to another, her face looks completely different. It's very interesting. Yeah. So it's been, and, and she also spiraled me just into jazz music in general, other jazz singers, mm -hmm. into Nina Simone. I found Nina through Billy, um, who was my other great love. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's just been an involving love affair for a really long time. Yes. And now it's culminated in this incredible film. I mean, I love you saying that it, she's so multi-layered. There's so much to become obsessed with and enamored by and learn about. Um, and this film, last time I interviewed you, you said something about how there could be many, many films. Like, we, you could do a film on, like, a year in her life. There's so many that could be made. But... I mean, your film does a really amazing job at painting a full picture of her life, like as much as possible. When you got this role, prior to getting it, had you been looking for acting roles? Like, had you been wanting to dive into movies? <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for this role and I wasn't checking for this role when it came through neither, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So. 
my manager brought it up to me and I was like, yo, this is a terrible idea. You know, we, we got to work on the next album. This is, I'm not an actor, A, that was the first thing. So I was like, you know, I just remember being baffled. I'm like, what is wrong with people? Like I was actually almost frustrated with how people were pressing. And I'm like, why? I don't understand this. What is it in your guys' minds? You have never seen me act. I've really never seen me act outside of musical theater in middle school and high school. You know what I mean? So I'm like, what, why are y'all should, you should really do this? And I'm like, and I was getting irritated because I just like, y'all are being really thirsty. Everybody's just <laughs> like, you need to do this because, so no, I was not looking to do that or to jump into this space. I knew that at some point I wanted to make a film with great mm-hmm. filmmakers and great writers, you know, but not jump into acting. At one point I had talked about was interested in acting, but like later on down the road, after I had taken, one of the things I said, if I'm gonna do it, I wanna take years off for music and just spend years just studying. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. studying, studying, studying. And then try some things and whatever. But um, yeah, no, it was definitely not. And I really tried to run from this as much as I could, but you know, mm-hmm. ultimately I'm glad I met Lee because I really, really fell in love with him. I'm still very much in love with him. <laughs> so uh you know and i i um and i think and i'm so grateful because he was actually afraid too which was intriguing to me and i think my fear was intriguing to him because it was just this thing that we had to mutually overcome and and i'm a i'm a spiritual person as i've told you before a deeply spiritual person mm-hmm. and i so it was a lot of prayer you know what i mean it's sort of seeking god seeking the lord about how to do this and then so it was meeting lee was reading Susan Lloyd Park's amazing script. Mm-hmm. And Joan Hari's Chasing the Scream. Um, and so this idea that we would be vindicating her legacy as a fan was very enticing for me. It's like nobody cared about anything, anything, but, you know, the work and her mm-hmm. legacy and truth. You know what I mean? And for me, honoring God in this space. And, you know, my dad always taught me, you're either all the way in or you're all the way out. You know what I mean? I hear you. You're doing some some things on, you know, on my side of my side of town. You know, I hear you. You're getting you're getting into you know, quite possibly production. Yes. Yeah. You heard right. So um, I'm super excited. This is the first time I've ever really talked about it. So I just signed a first look deal with Amazon Studios, and so um, um, we're working on <laughs> we're working on to create some scripted and non-scripted stuff and products and just bring really interesting stories that really touch the heart um, to the screen. And um, I'm really excited about it. We're already looking at some really feel-good moments and you know things to, to produce and to start with, and also doing uh, um, a docu-series on yours truly, but just, you know, kind of following, <laughs> following it around, but it, through my, through my eyes and through my lens. And so I'm actually joining the EP credits on that as well. So I'm excited about it. I'm a little nervous to kind of like, I've never mentioned it before. This is like the first time, but um, I feel like it's going to be really, really fun. And um, I hope to bring like really special stories um, to film and to, to people's homes. Congratulations. That's that's amazing. You know, that's that. I mean, it's a it's an exciting time. You know, you're, you're embarking on a new journey and, you know, it, those good nerves should, should be there. You know, when you're doing something, you know, special, it it should, you know, 
get you going, you know, and, and if you need any, you know, advice or help or whatever, just, you know, let me know. We're all, we're, we're under the same roof, you know, so Amazon's my home also. So. Say no more, fam. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there. That's great. It's also fun to be able to, like, do what you want to do, you know what I mean? To have the ability to see something that you're passionate about and be like, you know what, let me, like, give this my time and attention. Let me put my resources into that. Or I really want to tell this story, so let me go Let me go ahead and do that as well. For me, it's really just about telling great stories that either aren't told or unseen or missed or... Um, and it's just, it's so many great stories out there. It's just such a plethora of things out there that I just want to be able to... Um, to continue to do that. Nah, I feel the exact same way. So, yeah, continue to knock down them doors and, and uh, you know, save, save some IP for me, you know, save some for me. <laughs> you do the same. <laughs> I will. Okay, but since you offered, do you have any advice for me, like, while I'm making the step into this business? Build a really strong team around you. You always want to be like hands on, you know, and decide and pick through and read, you know, what 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 the what the uh, the voice of your production company is going to be. I think like really creating like a voice and and uh, um, you know what your mission statement is going to be is going to be really important. So when as you hire and really you know build your company, and I don't know how far along you are, but when you start to assemble that core group, they have to be a reflection of you and your taste and the things that you like. So. You know, I think, you know, that does take time. Just having a, a strong team with anything is, is super important. So I think that would be one. And then be fearless, you know, and you're the X factor, you know. So make sure, like, whenever you can, you know, get on the phone, you know, when, you, when you're bidding for things or, you're, you know, you're calling to, to uh, you know, to try to, to get certain properties or tell certain stories. I think that personal connection with you. Uh, will be the difference sometimes between, you know, you getting a property or somebody else. So just really throw yourself into the mix when you can, because I think it'll make it'll make a difference. Thank you. I um I do believe in building really strong teams are one of the best ways to do good at whatever you want to do. So thanks for that advice. And I guess also as a, you know, something to think about, you know, as a producer is like, um, and I'm sure I'm sure you're already thinking like this as well, is, you know, the ability to, you know, put teams together, but also put projects together and let, like, let those, those pieces be a reflection of the world that we live in. You know, you know, you know, you know diverse hires, uh, um, you know, giving opportunities to people who, who, uh, who normally wouldn't get a shot. You know, I think for me, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to start my own production company was I wanted to, my set and my cast and my crew to be a reflection of the world that I actually live in, you know, and, and, Seeing, you know, people who are, you know, overqualified and, you know, and, 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 you know, very capable of doing the job, but never really having opportunities to show what they could actually do. And, um, you know, I've been, you know, really lucky uh, to be able to, you know, have like minded, you know, partners and make it a, a mandate for my company that this is how we're going to do business. And if you want to do business with me, this is how we move and this is how we operate. So that was something that was always really important to me as a producer to start changing the game and, you know, um, you know, opening doors in the, in, in the right type of way. Like, okay, how can I lead by example? How can I start to uh, groom like the next generation of storytellers in front of the camera and behind? So, you know, as these young you know, men and women that are looking up at like, okay, I want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. And they can actually see people that look like them that are actually doing it. So now they know, okay, let me try to go ahead and, and, and do that as well. 
So it's so important to have representation from all different looks of life. You know, I mean, this is the world we live in isn't just one way or one color. So it's so important. And when you're really, I love that you're doing that. And when you're building a team, it's not just in front of the camera, but it's also like you mentioned, it's absolutely behind the camera because there's so many positions and so many opportunities and so many jobs that are really um, out there and that you want to be able to provide a wonderful opportunity for, for different people and all people. So I'm definitely think and applaud you for doing that. No, I appreciate it. it it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's second nature. I'm, I'm sure you, you know, it's, uh, it's just something that just naturally, naturally uh, comes to mind. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Serena, are you, would you ever be interested in acting? Would you ever try your hand at um, getting in front of the camera? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have time, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, it takes so much time and, and it takes so much dedication. I think anything I would want to do, I would want to be really good at it, or at least the best that I can do and put the practice in it and, um, you know, do that. But, um, uh, you know, my time is a little, is, is a little is a little short now, but um, I mean I would play an action hero because clearly I, I should be an action hero. So okay, so. okay, <laughs> maybe that Rain Rainbow Six sequel, you know, it might throw you in there. <laughs> and uh, what about you? Have you besides tennis? Obviously, is there any other sport that you've been just desperately ready to jump into? Well, you know, uh, back in my day, you know, my name is Michael Jordan. No, uh, I think that ship has sailed long time ago. <laughs> uh, of, of professional sports, it's more of a more of a hobby now. I, I think my time has a uh, has been spent in front of the camera so much, and not affording to get hurt. You know, I, I think you know, you know, twisting the ankle, getting hurt, injuries. Uh, Put you out for a minute. It was a sad day to stop playing ball. Honestly, I, I haven't played basketball in a really long time, and I used to be really good at it. You know, you can ask, you know, anybody, you know, out there. I used to, I, I, I used to do my thing. So you can produce a basketball movie and just be like this amazing. See, there, there it is. I think I got to find that middle ground of like, I got to, you know, produce the basketball show. Show. That, that gives me the best of both worlds. But, yeah. You know, when your body says, you, you know, you can still do it, but then it's not really responding the way you're supposed to. And, then, you know, you got these these kids nowadays, you know, I'm 34, but I'm, you know, you see you know, these rookies coming to the league. They're like, you know, 20, 19, 20, 21. And I'm like, OK, yeah, yeah, I have to stretch yeah. and ice. I like ice baths now. That's different. So I actually don't do ice baths. I only do them in emergencies. And okay. um, I... Yeah, I maybe once a tournament. I'm so anti-ice bath. I'm just like, no, I'm okay. Three-hour match, I'm fine. <laughs> You're like getting out of bed next I'll, morning. I'll like, come out tomorrow. I'll be, I'll be okay. <laughs> no ice bath. <laughs> yeah, I think during my time on Crete, like boxing and really going through that whole process, I, I got used to the ice bath. So, yeah, it helps. It does, but not, it doesn't help me. Is, so. so speaking of working out and boxing, I know Creed 3 is coming soon. Um, and I understand it's you're directing and starring into this. So tell me more about that. That I am really excited about. Being an actor, 
you know, for such a long time, eventually, you know, my, my taste bud starts to change. You know, you want to start telling the stories. Uh, you, you, you start having an opinion on, okay, what if the camera is set up here? What if this, it's shot like this? And, you know, honestly, seeing Ryan Coogler, you know, uh, you know direct uh, Fruitville Station, you know, we, we, we became really close. And seeing somebody that was so close in age, you know, uh, you know up, up to myself and, Seeing him direct the movie, I was like, man, okay, that representation you were talking about. Yeah. Like, man, maybe I could do that yeah. too. And he pushed me. He was like, listen, it's never going to be the perfect time. You got to just, you got to just do it. But make sure whatever you're, you're directing is something that you really love and care about. And, you know, the Creed franchise for me is something that, you know, um, I know the most. You know, I know my character the most. Um, and I have an incredible cast. You know, I think we have a, you know, a story that's going to be, you know, really impactful and, and special. So I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, we're working on a script, building it, you know, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for the challenge, you know. I think I've, I've learned up until this point and uh, I'm taking a little bit of, you know, from all the directors that I've had a chance and the pleasure to work with and, you know, you know, people that I know and I'm, you know, I'm just... Uh, I'm building my process, and it's fun. That does it for this week's show. We will be back next week making our final Oscar predictions because that's the time that it is. The Oscars are upon us. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us all on Twitter. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Joanna. Jarothis. And Chris. Uh, Chris Triss. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for our viewing habits after watching all of the nominated shorts goes to Chris Murphy. You know, I had my MTV, you know, Jersey Shore, 16 and pregnant brain on. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.